welcome to the fifth season of Case Studies in Treating Ocular Surface Disease. This time, our esteemed panel of Drs. Justin Schweitzer, Jacqueline Garlick, and William Trattler deliberate on a myriad of interesting cases across the ocular surface spectrum. In our first case, Dr. Jacqueline Garlick discusses a patient presenting with complex meibomian gland dysfunction. Hello everyone, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. My name is uh, Jackie Garlick and I practice in Boston, Massachusetts. And I have the pleasure of sharing this talk with Dr. Justin Schweitzer and Dr. Bill Trattler. So Justin, I'll uh, pass it to you and let you introduce yourself. Yeah, just an honor and a pleasure to be here with the two of you, excited about the conversation in regards to ocular surface disease and, and some MGD and, and, and a variety of other things. I uh, practice at an ODMD practice in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota called Vance Thompson Vision. Uh, yeah, I love what I get to do on a daily basis. So just an honor to be here with you guys and really looking forward to the discussion. Uh, my name is Bill Trowler. I'm from Miami, Florida. I'm at the Center for Excellence in Eye Care. We're a mix of ophthalmologists and we have one optometrist currently and we have an, uh, our goal is to have an integrated practice and my specialty is cornea especially cross-linking i do a lot of dry eye uh, a lot of cataract surgery and refractive surgery like lasik and uh, surface ablation and you know just to share i guess my philosophy you know, we work really well with our uh, both the optometrist in my practice who's really a, a, a disease focused optometrist and uh, really involved in uh, pre and post harbor management. So I feel very lucky to be in South Florida with just a great a combination of both MDs and ODs working together to take care of patients. That's great. I love to hear that collaboration. That is as it should be. So that, that's wonderful. Yes. Well, we all clearly have a love for ocular surface disease. I, uh, I, I bought my practice two <clears throat> years ago and have a growing dry eye practice. So we are here today to talk about a few cases and I'm going to start off this case with the title MGD with a twist, which really makes me regret that I didn't think ahead and come up with a cocktail that we could have like been drinking for this is I feel like it's a name of a cocktail. It should be only like an eye doctor. I feel like would appreciate that. So we'll begin here. So I have a 52 year old uh, white male patient who presented for uh, complaints of dry eye. That seems like it has gotten worse. Uh, since I last saw him. And he was also complaining about some blurry vision, worse in the right eye than in the left eye. Uh, this did seem to fluctuate with his blinks. I did see him prior, four months prior for his annual eye exam. And we had discussed at that time, you know, dryness and a treatment plan for him to combat some of these symptoms. He didn't implement any of those things that we talked about pre previously. So he is back today and says, I feel like my dryness is getting worse. Um, he is a contact lens wearer. So he does wear daily contact lenses six, seven days a week. His medical history is positive for hypertension and he um, controls that with amlodipine and hydrochlorothiazide. So here is. Oh, can, can I ask? A, I'm so sorry. Can I ask a question? So why, why did your why did your patient not start your therapy? You he came in complaining of, of of having a problem. You gave him a solution and he didn't even use it. That's I, I want to understand why. I, I I've got a little tidbit coming. Okay, for okay. that reason. But thank you for pointing out that my patient was not compliant and adherent to my my therapy. Okay. <laughs> I did say when, when I had seen him four months prior, this was for a comprehensive exam and he was, you know, mostly there to like update contacts and, you know, dryness was sort of like an aside. And I take my biography images on all of my patients, comprehensive or not. 
And so, you know, I point these out to him and I say, hey, you know this, but um, I, my, my thought was like, oh, he's, he's been now more aware of these symptoms that we talked about at that, four, at that exam four months ago. So this was kind of my thought process with this. So his exam findings, he is a little bit reduced vision wise in the right eye 2025 does pinhole the 2020s, 2020 in the left eye. Speed score is 13. He does have significant meibomian gland dysfunction. It is worse in the right eye. His expressions are not amazing. Turbid, toothpaste kind of expressions. And he does have some mild telangiectasias on his lash line. He does have a little bit of SPK, mostly nasal and temporal, and this is more apparent in his right eye than in his left eye. Tear breakup time significantly reduced three seconds in the right, five seconds in the left, and my biography images are here. So you can see a noticeable amount of atrophy that's happening in this right eye. So this is, seems like a pretty clear cut plan, okay? This is my Bomian gland dysfunction. This all makes sense to me clinically. We talked about this four months ago. And when we talked about it four months ago, we said we should start an Omega and do X, Y, and Z. So this is really a reiteration of what we kind of talked about the um, few months prior. So we started an Omega-3 supplement. Um, I, we did hydrochloric acid spray, and then we did thermal expression, which we performed that day. And we had spoken about that at the previous visit. So he was prepared for that. For the keratitis, I started low to prednol four times a day uh, for a week, and then I had him discontinue contact lenses. So for all of my thermal expression patients, I always see them back in one month. And he was, says he was better for about a week, but his symptoms have returned. And I look at him under slit lamp and this is, you know, better my bombing gland expression does still have a little SPK, kind of like a patchy area temporally. And he has also this sort of disrupted epithelium. So it's not a abrasion. It's not an EBMD situation. It is almost like a waterlogged effect that you'll sometimes see in a scleral lens wear. So normally, when I see my thermal expression patients back, they're very happy. They, it performs really well and I get very good results with that. And so when this gentleman is saying like, eh, like not a like kind of better, but like not really, like my red flags go off. Like what did I miss in this patient? First of all, it's a great case. I can't wait to see the final <laughs> answer, but I just curious how you decide to use one week versus two weeks versus more in certain patients. Like for example, you know, maybe, you know, do you ever use it for two or three weeks or longer? Or how do you decide like just a week here? For example, I was just curious how you came up with a one yeah. week plan here. Yeah, I, I do actually like using it for two weeks at a time. I do feel like I get better results when I do that. But this patient is kind of antsy to get back into contact lenses. But this is a good stopping point here because I do want to like open it up to the room and say, what do you think I maybe missed here? And what's something that I may have forgotten to look at? Well, I, I initially looking at it, I mean, I don't, I don't think you missed anything. I think a couple questions I would have would be, you know, you looked at the MG, I would love to know, you know, was there any other type of blepharitis involved with this? You know, the upper lids, how did they look, you know, when we think about, you know, anterior blepharitis and then, you know, I always run into the problem and I'd love to know how you attack this. Cause I think Bill brought it up beautifully is, you know, you only use the steroid for a week and it, you, you say it was because of the contact lens. And I'm sure you see a ton of contact lens patients. And a lot of those patients have ocular surface disease. We know steroids when there's corneal staining are a great option for these patients. How do you get it long-term and how do you use it long enough? And, and you can address that after, after we get done with our discussion. But I think the only other thing I'd want to know in this patient is, you know, 
what, what did the upper lids look like? What did the patient, if they looked down, was there any type of blepharitis on, on the anterior surface of the lid or the lids and lashes? Okay. Those are great questions. Very good. I, I, I would say, you know, I know about that uh, patient that they talk about that have like 20 contact lenses in their, under their <laughs> eyelids. So I'm, I'm he said it's a twist. I'm like wondering, because uh, uh, you said there's still some irritation of the, uh, the cornea and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if there's a secret uh, uh, stash of contact lenses that this patient forgot to tell you about. Let, honestly, that would be a way better case if that's, that is what it was. Okay. It is not, but Bill, you are correct. I did not flip this patient's lids when I first saw him. No, I did. Sorry, I did for his comprehensive exam. He has these concretions that have since no, are no longer embedded and they are all exposed underneath this upper lid. And so um, the area of, of SPK that I'm seeing in this like weirdo epithelium is all disrupted because these concretions are just kind of rubbing along this cornea. And this is why this poor gentleman is, is upset. But this was um, my reminder, you gotta flip these lids to make sure there's nothing hiding under there. So we had these concretions removed. Then he was my wow patient for my thermal expression. <laughs> this is what my normal thermal expression patients will say. So we had the concretions moved. His vision was back to normal. I did actually, which I didn't include in this slide, do a topography on him. And it was all, it was very much distorted by just those having those concretions under there. Um, his limp exam looked good. His cornea was clear. And the plan here was really just to continue these omegas and warm compresses. So that is my like words of wisdom for anyone that's watching this is to not forget to actually evert those upper lids. There were not 20 contact lenses in there, but um, concretions are also pretty annoying for this patient. Okay. Thoughts on um, this case? My only other thought around this was when you were presenting and you talked about that area that was kind of um, looked like SPK, loose epithelium, you mentioned it. I was thinking, well, could there be some underlying EBMD here? Is there a, you know, early Salzman's nodular degeneration that's leading to that epithelium being beat up and, and we need to address that. But typically if you treat the ocular surface, it's going to get better. Uh, I am terrible at remembering to flip the lids. So I'll be honest with you, like having this case in front of me is eye opening because a lot of times I don't think about it unless it's someone that comes in for a foreign body. And then I'm obviously going to do that, but I don't think about it in my dry eye patients or my MGD patients ever. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Then I don't Thanks, feel as bad that I missed that. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Well, I was going to ask you, so, um, I mean, it is a spectacular case. Um, and just now that we solved the case, I guess my question is a long-term plan. I mean, this patient already has a lot of my bone gland loss. I think omega-3s are helpful and warm conferences, but I'm a pretty big fan of continuing the hypochlorous acid spray twice a day. I just think that there's a bacteria component to this. And I'm just curious that if you typically do that, I mean, it's inexpensive, it's easy to do, it takes a second or two for patients. I'm not sure if that, is that a typical part of your treatment plan for these patients or not always? That, yeah, no, it absolutely is. I actually, I'm realizing I left it out of this plan here. It was continuing all of that same therapy minus the steroid. Um, I, I love hypochlorous spray. I feel like that is uh, extremely helpful and really dampening down that bacterial burden on the lash line. So I do very much like that. And for this particular patient and, and for a lot of my patients, a lot of the conversation on what our actual treatment plan is going to be is, is really a conversation between both of us. And so, you know, you could make a case for starting some other therapy at this point, but um, he, he was doing well and feeling good. And now that we have actually made some steps and some improvements, I feel fine with this continuing that treatment plan. And then, you know, following up in three months, six months, I forget when I'm seeing him again, actually, but 
um, and just kind of monitoring and then, you know, deciding further treatments as needed. But I agree with you, Bill. I absolutely continue the hypochlorous spray. I also just want to comment, you know, this is a great case to remind some of the listeners, you know, that you have in my mind, the four big pieces that you need. If you want to really start managing ocular surface disease or, or MGD, it's nice to have all this beautiful technology and those images you have were, were amazing. And, and I love my biography as well, but you had the questionnaire in here, you know, you use the speed questionnaire. I think that's a key piece to this case. I think you need a slit lamp, which we all have, you know, every optometrist, ophthalmologist has a slit lamp, vital dyes, you stained. So you're going to be able to look at the cornea. You're going to be able to look at the conjunctiva. And then you need a thumb or an index finger to assess the myobum to be able to look at that. And if you have those four pieces, you can actually start really treating. It's a really good reminder that at times when we feel a little overwhelmed, if we should really start managing patients, how we should manage them, that those four pieces that you showed in this particular case is a really good starting point to be able to manage these types of patients. Thank you for joining to listen to the MGD with a twist. In this next session, Dr. Justin Schweitzer showcases a diabetic patient with decreased corneal sensitivity. Hi, my name is Justin Schweitzer. I'm an optometrist at Vance Thompson Vision and really excited to be able to share this case with really two great colleagues and you know masterminds in, in ocular surface disease and dry eye. And so this particular patient was an 82-year-old uh, male Caucasian that presented to my clinic and had stated, you know, his vision had been declining over time. And I'd seen this patient in the past a few times, and I was working alongside a colleague in the community that was managing him as well, managing his glaucoma. And he really wasn't sure why his vision was declining. And he came and he said, you know, I'm not in any pain. I'm not having any discomfort, but I just don't see like I used to see. I'm not seeing well. And you can obviously see by his vision here when we drop down a little bit that he's not seeing well. Uh, 22.50 in his right eye and 20.50 in his left eye. And this was best corrected. Really couldn't improve his vision much more than that. His intraocular pressure was actually fairly well and very well controlled for him with his K-max or his T-max pressure being in the upper 20s. So his glaucoma was very well under control at this point in time. But when you look at his history, and these all come into play and it's very important in this particular case, his personal medical history, uh, he is diabetic. He's had multiple surgeries, cataract extraction, as well as a blepharoplasty. He's been on a prostaglandin analog for an extended period of time, you know, north of 20 years at this point in time when I saw him. And he has been being treated. And so the optometrist that I was working with in the community had tried a variety of different things. They tried some topical cortical steroid. They had plugged this patient with some punctal plugs, had done some immunomodulators twice a day, some preservative-free artificial tears, and really nothing seemed to be helping. And you can see the slit lamp exam when I stained his cornea and you could see there's diffuse SPK, diffuse punctate epithelial erosion across really the whole cornea. His fundus exam was very normal besides the glaucoma piece of thing, but there was no issues with the macular or anything along those pieces. And so I'm going to pause there and just want to open up the discussion here to the group and to Bill and Jackie, you know, what are some other considerations that you would want to take into account in a patient like this that presents like this with a healthy retina, you know, with glaucoma, but well-controlled and, and not progressing, but obviously having declined vision and, and a corneal presentation like that. So this is, this is a case where you're, I, I would definitely be testing a corneal sensitivity on this patient. So this is, I feel like a very um, classic 
um, you know, no pain, but lots of staining on the cornea. And uh, I'd be very suspicious of, an, of a neurotrophic keratitis in this case. So I, I in, in my clinic, use the old dental floss to um, test corneal sensitivity. So that's probably something else I'd, I'd want to see what's going on there, but also lids. I'm not sure if you commented on, on the lids of this patient. That's a great question. I did not comment on the lids of this particular patient and I don't have it listed here, but he definitely has some MGD. He definitely has some mild blepharitis as well. That was being fairly well managed again by, you know, the primary optometrist that I was working alongside of because he'd been hitting it with, with topical cortical steroids and doing some other treatments as well. Bill, anything to add to, to what Jackie said at all? No, I mean, I think obviously she's going down a, a particular pathway, which you've kind of let us down as well. And I think that these patients that are on these chronic glaucoma medications, their surface just gets beat up. I mean, that's the big problem. And so I'm, you know, I'm always trying to figure out, is there a way we can treat this glaucoma without uh, a way to stop the topical medications since they've been using it for 20 years? And maybe, you know, there's going to be a laser treatment or some other treatment that can be done, uh, Darista or something to get the patient off of a topical um, glaucoma medication. That may be very important to try to rehabilitate this cornea. Now, that's a, such an important point when we think about treating these types of patients. How do you minimize the medication burden? So I'm glad you brought that up because we do have glaucoma drug delivery. We do have BAK-free drugs. We do have preservative-free drugs we can consider, SLT, of course. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And with this particular patient, that was on my mind. And I did do you know, corneal sensitivity testing with this particular patient. And, and it is a critical question to ask, you know, when you see that much staining, if the patient has any pain and he was in no pain. And with that much staining, I would expect there to be some type of pain. And Jackie, you mentioned you use dental floss. Uh, myself, I actually use a cotton wisp when I do it. Bill, how do you test corneal sensitivity? I got to ask. Well, I have to be honest. I mean, why do you need to test corneal sensitivity? You know the answer already. I mean, what, 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 if it, what, if they, what if it comes out that the patient feels that, that wisp and it says, yes, I feel it. I mean, is that going to change how you're going to manage this patient? I mean, other than, you know, obviously the one FDA approved medication for true neurotrophic keratitis. I mean, it's really not going to change your management at this point. So you're, I mean, it's going to be exactly the same, to be honest. I mean, I've, you know, I've used, a, I usually use a cotton tip of a, and I just use the wisp, but I honestly just go ahead and start treating because my treatment's not really changing based on this outcome. No, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. I think the main reason I did is because based on his history, I was already going down the path knowing exactly what you said is with even without corneal sensitivity, I was pretty sure this was going to be an NK case. But we know do, we do know with the one FDA approved medication out there that the one thing they require in the chart note is you got to test corneal sensitivity. That's the only reason. But I agree with you. I don't, you know, you probably didn't need it, except that he'd been on so many different things, the cyclospore and the topical cortical steroids that I thought, well, I have some other considerations, but I may be going down a path to use an FDA approved medication, which we'll touch on here in a second. And so I did do corneal sensitivity testing very quickly in this particular patient. Uh, he was completely uh, anesthesia, so he did not feel anything. And when I do corneal sensitivity testing, I usually test, you know, superior temporal, superior nasal, inferior temporal, inferior nasal, central. In this patient, you really need to do that. Uh, he wasn't feeling anything on his corneas at all, no matter where you rubbed the, the cotton swab at, he wasn't going to be able to feel that. And so that led me to the diagnosis, which I diagnosed him as stage one neurotrophic keratitis in this particular situation. And really just to review these really quickly before we get into discussion around this, there's really three stages based on neurotrophic keratitis or the MACI classification. This patient fell in stage one 
because of the fact that he had, you know, some punctated epithelial erosions or SPK. He didn't really have any corneal edema or neovascularization or stromal scarring, but he fell in stage one. Stage two is that persistent epithelial defect, which he did not have, but that would be stage two. And then stage three would be stromal involvement and actually stromal melting or an ulcer that's present as well. So it's just a review of our levels of neurotrophic keratitis, and he fell right into stage one. So now getting into the fun part with you guys, what about treatments considerations? You know, the options that were attempted were topical cortical steroids, punctal plugs, immunomodulators, preservative-free artificial tears. And then I had to think about, well, what would I do next? And I, I listed the other considerations, but I would love to hear, hear your guys' thoughts. And I'll specifically ask, you know, Jackie, right off the bat, I'll just ask you and say, you know, is your next step when you see a patient that's been all of this on a stage one NK situation, do you attempt any of the other considerations that, that I talked about, or am, am I missing something? No, I, I, I do have a question. Does this patient still have punctal plugs there? Because that is, that is something that I don't use a lot of punctal plugs, because especially if this patient has a lot of meibomian gland disease, and that isn't really cleaned up well, although maybe you did say that it, the, the primary optometrist was managing that well. I, I don't, I, um, I would just make sure that we're not trapping whatever inflammatory mediators on the eye with the punctal plugs, but this is a great case, I think, for an amniotic membrane for this patient. So I certainly wouldn't hesitate to use an amniotic membrane in this case. Yeah, great point on the inflammation. The patient did have punctal plugs, and the primary care optometrist that I was working with was treating with the topical corticosteroid, calming down that inflammation. But I am a big believer that I don't plug when there's inflammation on there. So I think that's a great point. There was punctal plugs still present in this particular patient. Bill, I, I know you're going to comment and I, I kind of jumped in. Go ahead. I'm no, sorry. No, it's perfect. Well, okay. So just to share. So I'm in Miami, Florida and Schaefer saying who developed, you know, Procara, we work at the same surgery center. So I've had a chance to work with him for 20 years. We're not in the same practice, but I've had a chance to consult with him on many, many patients. And so you guys are right. This patient needs punctal plugs, even in the presence of inflammation, because you're gonna treat the inflammation with an anti-inflammatory. But you wanna, you need to raise the tear volume as much as possible. So he recommends, and what I do is both lower and upper plugs, which is most people don't do. Most people will just do the lower plugs, forget about the, or don't even consider the upper plugs, but if you put the upper plugs in, the volume's gonna go way up and you're gonna do a much better job. And then when you get to Procara, it's gonna actually work much better. So it'll dissolve a little less quickly. And so that's always Dr. Sang's uh, recommendation for Procara is you do upper and lower plugs. You, can, uh, you don't necessarily need a steroid if you're using Procara, but if you're not using Procara, you could use a steroid to try to reduce the inflammation. So just throwing that out there as a, as a comment. Oh, it's a great comment. I love, you know, the, I love the artfulness around all of this too. You know, we have all these different comments. There's, there's no necessarily perfect way to do it. There's none yeah. of us have a monopoly on the truth, but we, we, we have different ways of approaching it. And just hearing you two talk about it is, is great. And so I, I do agree. I think an amniotic membrane graft was, was a consideration here. I thought about a toggle serum drops as well in this particular situation or a biologic. Uh, do we do that for this particular patient? You know, I don't love a tosarfi just because I don't love closing the eyelid. I mean, you could do partial, but gosh, this gentleman, I didn't want him having, I wanted him to still be able to live life. I didn't want to close that at this point in time. And so the first three were really the three that I was kind of debating or, or discussing on what I would do. And ultimately what I did is I did go with uh, Sinindramin, uh, the BKBJ20 MCG per milliliter. And, you know, this is a FDA approved medication that is for stage one, two, or three neurotrophic keratitis. And 
I don't typically in stage one go right to that, to be completely honest. And I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. I do attempt a lot of things that were already attempted in a patient like this, where I'll treat the inflammation, I'll use aminomodulators, I'll make sure that my bomian glands are functioning. You know, I will plug and I will consider the biologics or autologous serum before I jump to that. But in this particular case, why I felt like I needed to go to it was just because of all the things that he'd been through and then where his visual acuity was as well at 2250. And so that's what I did and dosed it six times a day for eight weeks. And at eight weeks, we saw a really nice improvement. He went from 2250 to 2040. You can see that, you know, his cornea cleared up. It wasn't hundred percent. And this is someone that we're still managing and going to have to continue to manage because we got a chronic issue that we're dealing with, but we definitely improved his life. Uh, with this particular medication in this particular situation. So Bill, I'm going to throw the question to you now, you know, do you agree that you would try some of those other options first before you jump right away to this particular medication? Or do you kind of, how do you stratify or when do you decide to use something like this? Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners want to know that and, and are interested in that. Well, first of all, congratulations. I mean, this instead of improving, this patient is loving you. I mean, any regimen I'm about to tell you is going to take much longer than you know, this period of time to get to 2040, just to throw that out there. So this was a quick improvement for this patient. Um, one thing to, that I, I always try to figure out is, is there a way to, we talked about a few minutes ago, um, can we stop the prostaglandin? Because maybe that's one of the primary issues. And in the FDA clinical trials to be for this, for this drug, they had to get off all the topical medications before they could be enrolled in the study. And so I wonder if that, that may have played a role, but did you stop it or you continued it and were able to use this medication? I, I did continue it uh, because nice. of his glaucoma in, in this right. situation. Uh, I still love your thought on reducing medication burden. It's on my mind all the time. So I think it's just a, a brilliant thought in this particular case that, that I didn't really consider because I didn't want his pressure to get out of control. But I think for short-term use, it would have been a smart thing to do. And we can right. always get him back on it later. Right. So one thing that's interesting is if we wanted to enroll this patient in an FDA clinical trial for a glaucoma medication, we would make them wash out of the prostaglandin for about a month. And that's what every clinical trial does. You know, so if they're going to wash out, if the FDA says it's okay to get this patient off of medication for about a month, why can't we just do it here for a month? And then you, I mean, he's well-controlled, as you mentioned, just stop him for a month and then restart after he's turned the corner. It's just throwing out one other thought or concept. I know it's hard to do. It's like this pressure is going to be high, but maybe it's the right thing to do in this one situation because this is affecting his vision far more than the glaucoma is right now. Agree one hundred percent. Can I ask what is what would be your hesitation in starting Oxtravate sooner? You you were saying, oh, I would maybe try X, Y, and Z first. Is there a reason you would say, oh, I'll wait to try these things first as opposed to just jumping into an Oxtravate? Yeah, I don't have a lot of hesitation. I've I've used the medication quite often. Have had extremely great luck with it. I think part of the reason is is his age. Part of it was you know his 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 nervousness around the fact that he was going to have to take a medication six times a day for eight weeks. And I do take that into account. And I do talk to my patients about that. And I never mentioned that at the beginning of the case. And so, and he'd been through a lot, he'd been on a lot of different treatment options that weren't working. And so this was someone that was fairly frustrated in general with how he was seeing and what was happening in his life. And so no, I have no problem jumping in earlier with it. I think it fit with this one, but I do take into account a little bit about what the patient's lifestyle is. And do I think they can be compliant with taking something six times a day for eight weeks? So that's a good point. Now, sometimes it takes a couple of weeks to actually get the medication to the patient. So you could be doing a couple of things in advance. And then by the time they get the medication, they're already just a little bit better. And this drug can even work more easily and help you even more. 
This is a great case. This is amazing. Well, I sure appreciate your guys' time on this and all the discussion and the considerations around it. I'm going to sign off and I hope everyone can join us for another case very, very soon. In this final case, Dr. William Trattler discusses a severe case of dry eye disease prior to cataract surgery. So hi, I'm Bill Trattler from Miami, Florida. I'm here with two outstanding, uh, in, I guess, interior segment uh, specialists uh, for, and we're talking about uh, dry eye. We have Justin Schweitzer and Jackie Garlic. So they're, you're both amazing experts in aqua surfaces, dry eye. And uh, we're gonna have a fun, uh, interesting case, which I love to get your, your thoughts on. And my title is The Impact of Dry Eye and MGD on Cataract Surgery Planning. Um, and this is our patient. So it's an 80-year-old female who comes in for cataract surgery consultation, just like all the patients you see in your practices. Um, you know, the patient reports some reduced vision, their vision is 2051 eye, 2060 other. And you do this little exam, they have cataract, so pretty consistent with the 2050-2060 vision. We do know that they have a low tear film level. And, and uh, Dr. Garlic, for you, um, for patients uh, presenting for cataract surgery, do you notice that when you have patients coming in for, uh, you see patients that have cataracts or visually significant, they, they probably need cataract surgery. Do you notice that they commonly complain of foreign body sensation when they have dry eye? Or and do they usually have complaints of dry eye or are they usually more asymptomatic? No, I, I do feel like they complain more about dry eye. I mean, certainly we know dry eye is more prevalent as we age. So it, it would make sense that, that we do see that more in our cataract surgery patients. And, and I do experience that as well. I do feel like they complain a bit a bit more, not always, this is not always a given, but it certainly is, um, you know, something that we hear and something we have to look out for when we're referring for cataract surgery. Absolutely. That's a great point. We definitely, definitely see patients that have complaints of dry eye, uh, but what's interesting is we did this study um, where we actually surveyed patients who were coming for cataract surgery at multiple sites around the U.S., and we asked them whether they had symptoms of dry eye. And it's interesting that the patients coming in for cataract surgery, um, most of them actually were saying at the time, again, this is just a, their symptoms of, of dry eye, a foreign body sensation. Most of they had no symptoms at all. Um, they had no foreign body sensation. And 28% said, oh, maybe some of the time I have a little dry eye, the foreign body sensation, but nothing too exciting. So it's really 87% of our patients said that they had minimal to no symptoms coming in for cataract surgery consultation. And these were patients actually that had cataracts who were already scheduled for cataract surgery. So it's only 13% of patients that were actually very symptomatic. So if you look at a big population of patients coming in for cataract surgery, most actually are, don't complain a lot about dry eye. They're not going to tell uh, the three of us, hey, I have dry eyes. They're going to come in saying, I can't see as their main complaint. Um, so the patient comes in, uh, we do the initial biometry, uh, we do the OCT, the macula, and topography, which I do on every patient. I find it's very helpful. And so that is for Dr. Schweitzer. So how common do you think dry eyes in, is in our patients coming in for cataract surgery? Is this, do we see it in about 10% of our patients, 20% of our patients? How common is dry eye overall? Uh, very, very common. I would say it's well north of 50%. I mean, I think of today, I did eight cataract evaluations in prep and six out of the eight had at least some level of dry eye that we needed to manage and, and take care of. So, you know, I'd say 70 to 75% of our patients that come in that are wanting cataract surgery have some type of, of dry component, different levels, but different, but, but types of dry eye. Right. See, the challenge of these questions is you guys are both fantastic experts. You guys know, we, you know, you're not, you know, you, you're both very knowledgeable. So uh, I agree. I think it's a very high percent. And so again, in that study, we looked at some of the numbers. So again, um, we, looked, we found that even though the patients were asymptomatic, I showed you such a high percent were, 
they were asymptomatic. We found that tear breakup time was abnormal, actually very abnormal. It was 60% of our patients had a, a tear breakup time of less than five seconds in the study, a multi-center study. And 50% had central corneal staining, 76% had any form of corneal staining. And our Shermer's test, which I don't normally do in my practice, but it was part of the study, was actually extremely low in about 21% of patients. So it's actually matching up, Justin, with, with what you just saw in your last day of seeing patients. Uh, Jackie, do you agree? Is that kind of what you see in your patients when you're who have cataracts? What, what's your experience? Yeah, I think um, actually a point on the on the previous slide is that I think um, a lot of times, and I don't know what the questions are in the study for the first slide, but I think a lot of it is how and in what way you're asking the questions about whether or not someone has dry eye, because dry eye is associated with a lot of symptoms, but fluctuating vision is one of them. And if you're really trying to tease out what this cataract surgery was, this cataract patient is suffering from um, fluctuating vision is certainly one of them. But but to answer your question here, I, I do certainly, you know, I think we're all very much looking for dry eye in all of our patients. So it's very easy for us to, I think, find that in a lot of patients, but it certainly is very prevalent in this population. Right. So here's our topography um, and our IOL master. And um, just uh, who wants to jump in and share what your thoughts are on this uh, patient's uh, findings so far? Yeah, I can jump in, you know, just looking at the topo right there, I'm already a little concerned. It looks a bit irregular. Uh, I never like to see the colors kind of changing like that. So there's a little bit of irregularity there that's going to raise a little bit of a red flag for me right off the bat. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. There's a, a, a good amount of myobomian gland atrophy and, um, you know, mostly centrally here, but you can still see that in particular in this left eye, nasally, um, more so on the left eye than the right eye, but there's a good amount of meibomian gland atrophy. I'd be very curious what that expression looks like on that patient. Absolutely, no, that's a great point um, and perfect. And so just, and this is a question I'm gonna ask you, Jackie, so ignore the Dr. Schweitzer there. Um, is there a way that we can make this better? Like, is it, can you actually regrow these glands or do you think they're, once they're gone, they're gone and, and we just have to try to ma maximize the health of what's left? So I tell patients when I'm talking about this with them, once these glands are gone, they're gone. But in reality, there are case reports of um, showing you know, mil a few millimeters of growth using different therapies. So uh, particularly IPL. So I know Laura Perryman does a lot of this work in her clinic, and she's published a few case reports on this. Uh, but I, I tell also patients like this isn't really widely accepted just yet. We don't really have anything that can actually regrow these glands. So once they are gone, there's not much I can do for those. So let's work on preserving and, and uh, improving what we've got. Okay, perfect. Thank you. No, that, I, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, it's, these are tough. So the entire patient started off with, and you can see that it's how they look on the side. Um, and this is my, my plan. So as we talked about, we, all three of us love hypochlorous acid spray, which helps reduce the bacteria load in the eyelids and hopefully you get less lipase secretion, so less MGD down the road. Uh, we also started this patient on topical steroids to reduce the inflammation, uh, some warm compresses with some good expression to help um, you know, improve the myeloma against secretions. And uh, any other recommendations? These are just a couple of things that can be done. Um, what else do you guys like to do in this type of scenario? You know, for me, I love where you started here. I like to keep it fairly simple at the beginning. So I'm not going to add a lot for another recommendation. Now I'm always trying to think ahead. So I love where you started here. I love to reduce inflammation. I love, we're going to treat the glands. I love the hypochlorous acid. And then if the patient comes back in a month or so, I may consider adding, you know, an immunomodulator at some point, I may consider plugging the patient as well, because I feel like I've got the inflammation down, but I love where you're starting here with this bill. 
Yeah, I agree also. I, I think um, in terms of the warming therapies, there was actually a study that I don't believe was funded by um, Lipaflow, but I don't know if either of you have seen this, but there was a study that showed doing Lipaflow prior to cataract surgery really improved cataract surgery outcomes. And so I think warming therapies in terms of a warm compress are good, but better is more of an in-office thermal expression. So I think that's certainly something that we could add to the list, but I agree with what you've got here. Um, it's a good, good starting point. Omega-3s would be another option, but these are obviously not acute. They don't work fast. So um, right. down the road, perhaps. Beautiful. Well, thanks, you guys. So um, th now this is how the patient looks. So this is what we did with the hypochlorous acid spray, um, worked on the lids, and then also um, topical steroids. And you can see the nice improvement in, the, in this uh, topography. And also we look at the uh, keratometry readings. You can see they're lining up much better. The Ks are much more symmetrical. Um, so now we're getting a much better better reading. So you can see just by treating this patient, we're gonna get a much better outcome when we actually perform cataract surgery. Of course, it, what's also interesting is that, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen this as well, patients are often asymptomatic prior to cataract surgery. They undergo cataract surgery, uh, which is a surgical procedure, plus they're on these drops for a month. And then I find about six weeks later, they're often more symptomatic. They have more foreign bias right. sensation. They say, what's wrong now? Like they're more sensitive. So. I, if we don't treat them ahead of time, then they get upset at us afterwards. And I have to remind them, look, we already treated you ahead of time. I, we identified this. It's just, you know, there's still your dry eye just acting up. But yeah, but great points, Jackie. Um, obviously, there, you know, there's um, different various other options that we could use for a treatment. Like Justin, you came up with some good ideas. Jackie, great ideas as well. Um, so in my practice, like now that the, now that the scans look better, I actually would go ahead and schedule the patient for cataract surgery. I think that I feel comfortable with how that particular patient looks. Um, I'll share that I did my mom's cataract surgery and it took me months to try to improve her ocular surface disease. Even though my dad's been treating her with restasis and some other th therapies, when I got a chance to see her before cataract surgery, she, her, she had terrible MGD. It was just uh, very frustrating. We did Lipoflow, lots of therapy, uh, Regenerize, steroids, and I eventually had to go with a light adjustable lens because I didn't trust my K readings. And, um, oh and actually, thank God I was correct because I was still a doctor off um, more hyperopic than expected, but I got to adjust her back to 2020 with the latest lens. So oh my gosh. Very, it's always very, family. It's always exa family. Exactly. That that <laughs> exactly. But also it was great because we've had a chance to like learn. I mean, think about where we were 10 years ago and my mom gets the benefit of what all three of us have learned over the last 10 years on MG, treating MGD, how to manage patients, the importance of evaluating patients and treating them ahead of time. It wasn't as done as commonly ten years ago, so she benefited from everything that th you know three of us have learned, and you know from uh, from us and all our colleagues. So I think we're all very lucky. So beautiful. So you guys are just two fantastic uh, experts in ocular surface disease and dry eye, and so it's really fun, uh, you know, being with you, Justin, and with you, Jackie, and being able to discuss this case. And I'm looking forward to to uh, to future cases that we can all share together. Thank you. Thank you to our panel for an engaging and informative discussion, and thank you for listening.